Have you ever thought about how roads are cut and planned? I'm reminded of the new corridor uh, on the Route 35 that goes between Putnam and Mason County. And if you've driven that way, you've seen a lot of work done. You've seen valleys filled in and mountains brought low, uh, just how they've cut into that. What seemed like an insurmountable task of making this road was made possible because a straight path was made between those two places. Now a four-lane road exists and travelers can pass a lot, easy, a lot more easily than before. And today we're going to see John the Baptist preparing the way for the Lord. Just like that road was prepared for people to travel from one place to another, John the Baptist is going to be preparing the way to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so join me as we read about John cutting a straight path in the midst of an evil world. We're going to be in Luke chapter 3 verses 1 through 14. It'll be up here if you need it. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, and Herod the Tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, Tetrarch of the region of Eturia and Traconitus, and Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to him to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you were authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Uh, your word is sharp and penetrating. It's living and active. It penetrates to the, the dividing of our soul and spirit, joints and marrow, as your word says. And Lord God, I pray that you open up our hearts to your word and our minds to your word, and may the word enter our minds through our ears, and may, may, may your Holy Spirit reveal to us what it, what it means to us and apply it to our lives, God. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up, Lord. We pray that, that we don't just take our study this, this morning as a head knowledge study, but may it be a heart knowledge study. God, salvation requires us to give our whole self to you, not just our minds, but our entire self. And God, I pray that our hearts are given to you. If, if somebody here doesn't have you as their Lord and Savior, I pray that you draw them to you right now, that you be drawing them to you and making the way of salvation known to them. Lord, I thank you so much for your word that, that you loved us enough to not only die on the cross for our sins, which is amazing, that if we repent and put our trust in you, we can be saved. But God, you've given us your word, so we don't have to, to guess what you like, what you don't like, what you love, and what you hate. 
don't have to guess what your commands are. God, you've given them to us in your word. So help us to love your word as well. For your word is light and life to us, Lord. We love you, praise you, and thank you. Amen. So today we're going to see how John the Baptist prepares the way of the coming Messiah, namely Jesus Christ. In the first way, the way of the Lord is made straight among an evil empire, among an evil empire. I'm going to read uh, verses 1 again. In the 15th year, the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch, tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Tetrarch of the region, uh, brother Philip, Tetrarch of the region of Ituria, and Trachonidas, and Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene. So note the physician, Luke is a physician. Note his thoroughness in this. I mean, he's telling you all these people at this time. He's very thorough, uh, as we've talked about before. He wrote two books, but yet wrote over a third of the New Testament. I mean, if you're looking, he just, he writes a lot, uh, if we're kind of looking here. And here we see this first group of evil empire rulers, the evil empire of Rome. And of these rulers, we're going to see Herod and Pontius Pilate make the most uh, showings during the crucifixion of Christ. So they're going to, most of this book and really the Gospels in general are, are rallied around these, these two uh, who are uh, used by God uh, to crucify Christ, in all honesty. He, he uses them to make these bad decisions of this. And for, you the, uh, for, for those of you who are history buffs, you may be like, well, I'd love to study all about these people, and there's so much we could go into, but this book's not about these men. Th- this, this, these men are given to us to let us know this is the time of history that we're dealing with. So uh, you know, we're, I would love to go into it. I'm a history buff too, but, but we're going to move forward, and we're going to see that not only is this evil empire ruled by evil men, but this evil empire has also influenced an evil religious uh, theocracy of uh, Judea, of Israel. We see in, in uh, verse 2, during the high priesthood, hu- priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. So we're given two high priests here, Annas and Caiaphas, and these are not great fellows. If we're looking, the control of Rome had taken over uh, Israel, and they had really invested a lot into controlling this territory. Rome, uh, Israel was known to rebel against people who came in and took over them, and so they really wanted to manipulate the situation. So what better way to manipulate it than to take over the high priesthood? And so they had, and so these high priests were not righteous men. They were men who were corrupt and all about evil gain, and so, and, and even then it wasn't, never, it wasn't always enough. Annas, uh, we'll, we'll find out, actually lost his position as high priest in A.D. 15, but the high priest was really a lifelong service, so Luke mentions them both as being high priests here. But Annas continued in, in great power, even though he lost his title, continued great power because it was his son-in-law, Caiaphas, who was placed in his place, and he kind of, Caiaphas did whatever Annas really wanted him to do, if we look. So here we see even the priesthood as part of this evil empire that John is beginning his ministry in. But in the midst of all this evil, the word of God comes to John. And if you remember the last time we saw John in the book of Luke, we're going straight through the book of Luke here. It was actually at the end of chapter 1, verse 80, showing us showing Luke's thoroughness. There's 80 verses in this first chapter. It says, And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Now we're seeing his public appearance. Uh, so we've been waiting for him for a while to see what would happen. And you're like, well, why did he end up in the wilderness? Well, obviously there were prophecies about him ending up in the wilderness, so that's the first reason why. God had sovereignly ordained it, so it was going to happen. But if you remember, Zechariah and Elizabeth, his parents, were they young or old? They were pretty old. They were pretty old, actually, to the point where Zechariah is like, uh, are, are you serious? He ends up being mute because he doubts the power of the Lord to, to, to uh, you know, allow Elizabeth to bear a son. And he's like, uh, I mean, 
we're, we're a little aged there, you know? And, uh, and God shows his miraculous ability by bringing John the Baptist, being born to an older couple like that. But them being older, what does that mean? That means they probably didn't live a long time after he was born. And so it's thought that he likely ended up in, you know, growing up in the wilderness after they had passed as he had no other family, really, at that point, and to fulfill prophecy. And if we look the way Luke writes here, he writes in a traditional prophetic uh, uh, narrative. If you look at the prophecies of the Old Testament, we see that narrative start with the rulers of the area. And so Luke starts off that way. And we also see that there is the word of God, of God that comes to them. And we've just seen that happen here. But what exactly does, God, or does, does John do with that word that comes to him? So verse 3 says, And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John took the word to the people around the Jordan. And frankly, that's what we should do with the word of God, right? We may not have the word of God appear to us like it appeared to John or the prophets of the Old Testament where they get a direct revelation from God. You know, that, that's not how it necessarily works today, but we have the word of God given to us in completeness. Actually, even better than what these prophets had. Yes, it was pretty cool that God spoke to them directly. That's pretty neat. Our angel of the Lord would speak to them. But we have the entire counsel of God that we have. And, and what should we do? We should do what John did. We should proclaim it. We should tell others about it. We should tell others about the gospel and how great that God is. And Luke is actually the only gospel writer that emphasizes the preaching ministry of John. And this, this ministry involved preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And I think it's really important to see how John preaches this. And, and it's really important because there's some parallels to baptism today, even though there really wasn't. We'll get, we'll get into there wasn't actually baptism in Israel's history much at this point. But baptism, here we see that people repent, they're forgiven, and then they're baptized. And, and it's in that same order that we are, even though it's a much different thing. We look back to the sacrificial death of Christ, that, that we are buried with Christ, and we're risen with Christ, and it's, a, it's an outward sign of what God has already done through repentance and salvation, through his work in our life. It, it's more of that. But, but here, the, the baptism that John was doing was a sign that people had repented and been forgiven. It says, hey, I've humbled myself before God. Um, and so if we actually look, there was no previous parallel. So we're like, where did this come from? You know, obviously it came from God, and God had done that. But we also see that it, it's pretty certain at this time that the Jews had begun to practice something called proselyte baptism. So what happened was non-pure Jews, so maybe even some Samaritans, people that, that, that had maybe inter, you know, intermarried with other people, uh, or, or even some Gentiles that wanted to be Jewish would try to convert to Judaism. And, and one thing that had been begun to happen at this point was they would be baptized, which was kind of a ritual cleansing of their paganness, and say, okay, we're going we're gonna to teach you the word of God, and then we're going to baptize you, and then we're, we're going to have a ceremony to, to kind of make you Jews that way. And that's really cool to think about, but think about John and who he's talking to. He's talking to Israel. He's talking to purely pure Jews, uh, people who are maybe even religious leaders, if we look back then, people who are there. And what is he asking them to do? He's asking them to identify themselves with Gentile pagans and say, you need to approach God that way. Now, you know, you need to approach God like you need cleansed completely, that just being, that being a Jew does not make you clean. And that they were to humble themselves in order to be truly repentant. And my friends, even today, we must truly humble ourselves and see ourselves 
as in need of a Savior, see ourselves as dirty and unclean, undeserved sinners. And unless we do see ourselves as bad, we can never be saved. Because salvation requires us to see ourselves as we truly are. If we see ourselves as good, then we don't see the need for a Savior. We don't, we don't see the need for cleansing because we think that we are already good. <coughs> Listen to Paul as he quotes the psalmist in Psalm 14 and 53, and as he, as he writes in Romans 3, 10 through 12. As it is written, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. Wow, that's a tough word. They have become worth. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And until we agree with God that we are worthless, that we have nothing good, that we don't seek God, we seek our own interests, we seek to do what we want to do, we can never be saved because we can never truly repent. Repentance means saying, giving God that yes. I agree. What I do, who I am, is a sinner, and I am in need of salvation. And repenting is, is agreeing with God and turning from it, doing a 180 and putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, not my will, but your will be done. We can't do that unless we first acknowledge there's a problem. What are we being saved from? We're being saved from hell, absolutely, but we're also being saved from ourselves because ourselves, we are evil, and we do what is wrong because only then when we see ourselves as in a hopeless state without Christ, only then we can truly repent. And so far we've seen the way of the Lord being prepared and made straight among an evil empire. And next we see the way of the Lord is made straight among an evil environment. Among an evil environment. Join me as we read verses 4 through 6. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. I love the figurative language of environmental reshaping here. I mean, really, that's, that's why we see, we see valleys filled, mountains and hills laid low, crooked ways become straight, and rough places made level. And this imagery is just really cool to ponder in your head, and that's why I kind of gave you this, this illustration of Route 35, and I don't know if anybody hasn't driven that route or a route like it where you just see mountains and you just see this path that goes straight through, and you're going over bridges. Uh, you're, just, you're just seeing valleys filled in with these bridges. You're seeing mountains that are just cut through, and it's so amazing to see that, and that's what John is doing. He's cutting through the evil empire. He's cutting through the evil environment that is around him to say, hey, we want to make a path straight to Jesus. That is our goal is to say, hey, let's throw all this other stuff to the side and let's make a path to Christ. And we think about how they did that and how much work it took to do 35 and how many excavators and different machinery that needed to do that. Think about how crazy that environment was in John's time. They didn't have those things. And think about how they were like, what do you mean filling in a valley? Like how many people would it take to use shovels and, and machinery, like their, their machinery at that point, which wasn't like ours, to be able to do that. But still this imaging is, is amazing even today. But all this imaging, imagery is given to show that even though there is a corrupt world around John the Baptist uh, and, and Jesus Christ, God will use John to repair this way. And Luke quotes uh, Isaiah 40, 3 through 5. That's what we've just kind of seen him allude to here. And all four gospel writers actually quote this, but Luke is the only one being the thorough guy. He includes the entire thing, verses 3 through 5. This inclusion reminds us that John was a prophecy fulfillment years before Isaiah was written some 700 
plus years before what we're reading now. How amazing is God that he knows it all. He is sovereign. He is omnipresent, meaning he is everywhere at all times. He's also every time at all times because he's not limited. So let's glorify God for that. And there's also some, some figurative language that may be here, too, that we can kind of see some things that Isaiah is referring to and that John's referring to here, too. Every mountain and hill, and hill made low likely refers to humility. So we see in the scriptures to be laid low was to be humbled before God. So the evilness of this world, mountains are chopped down. No matter, like if you pop, you puff yourself up, you will be chopped down eventually. And I pray that you are humbled without the chopping part. We're going to get to that here in a little while. That you were humbled before God voluntarily, that you were drawn to him and that you humble yourselves. It's likely an image of repentance. We see this in Luke 18, 14, we're going to see later, I tell you this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for, wh- for whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but, he, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. If you want to wish to be accepted by God, you must first humble yourself before him. Next we see the crooked shall become straight, may be a figurative reference to the corrupt generation, understanding the straight path for salvation in Christ. We'll see John later, uh, not too much, actually just not too much farther, point to Christ and point a straight path to Jesus Christ. Uh, that, that there is only one path, there's only one way to God, and that is through Jesus Christ. And we see that Jesus himself, see this in John fourteen six, which we've read many times. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is no more anti-universalism verse than this verse. Jesus is the only way, not Muhammad, uh, no Allah, no Buddha, nothing else. Hinduism will not get you to God. There's only one straight path, and the straight path has been cut toward Jesus Christ since the beginning, even before the beginning. We see in Genesis 3, after the fall of man, the path is cut toward Jesus Christ. Genesis 3.15, the proto-evangelium, the first gospel, uh, as I will put enmity, enmity between you and the man, and you will bruise his head and he will or he, he will bruise his heel and he will crush your head we see already a messianic prophecy that jesus will come and make things right yes man has blown it through through sin but god will redeem them jesus is the only way and there's only one way to be forgiven even in the midst of an evil environment the way of the lord is made straight and finally number three the way of the lord is made straight among an evil inheritance among an evil inheritance I'm going to go ahead and read verses 7 and 8. He said, Therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. I'll say this. You know, in our world, we live in a world of seeker-sensitive preaching, meaning that we think that people are seeking God, although Romans 3 says no one seeks God. We have this view, messianic, or sorry, we have this missional view of church that everyone out there wants to know about Jesus, and the answer is no, they don't. They don't want to hear about Jesus. They don't want to hear about God. We need to share the gospel, and it's only by God drawing them to him that they'll be saved. It has to be both. We have to preach the gospel, and they have to be drawn by the Holy Spirit. We have this, this view that people are just seeking God. No, God is seeking people. It is, it is backwards because we are not good. We don't seek God, but God seeks us. He leaves the 99 to go after the one, and he convicts us and draws us, and it's up to us to respond to that drawing. But praise be to God, he understands our evilness and that we 
won't seek him without him seeking us first. We love because he first loved us, right? Not because we have anything good in us. And, and John is not very secret sensitive. His uh, wilderness church gatherings here are not exactly the Joel Osteen type of messages that you are good. And now this, no, he says, you brood of vipers. Do you know what that means? It means you're children of poisonous snakes. Like that, if I stood up here and said, hey, good morning, brood of vipers. Like that's not exactly the way to make friends. It's just not really a great way to make friends. But, but John, he's not into the ego boosting verbiage. He, he is preaching the truth. These people are a brood of vipers. And, and, and this is a pretty harsh thing, but we know what snakes do. Snakes have in common with Satan. They are children of Satan, children of the devil. They are not, they're opposed to God. He knows that these people he's preaching to, many of these people may go on to crucify the Messiah shortly after. I mean, how, how crazy is that to look at these people and be like, yeah, you all are all children of the devil. That's pretty much what he's saying. If somebody ever calls you a snake, it's usually not a good thing. It's usually a negative connotation. Yeah, snakes are some 80, some 80 times in the Bible, and they're usually not in a positive light. We see Satan appears as what? A snake or a serpent in the garden in Genesis 3. Uh, in Numbers 21, we see that snakes bite and kill tons of people as a judgment from God. And we see the wicked are referred to those in the book of Isaiah, chapter uh, 59, verses 5, as ones who hatch viper eggs. Usually not a term of endearment. So if your spouse calls you a snake, I wouldn't go to the bank with that. You need to probably repent and figure out what's going on that would cause that. So just like the serpent of old or Satan has judgment coming toward him, those who oppose God are serpents and snakes, and they have judgment coming to them the same way. But there is a, there's good news. So John has a quite, quite a doomsday message, and I love how he even says, who, who warned you to flee from the wrath that is to come? But he does have some positive and hopeful things. He says, they may bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And here we see a, a really important lesson, that those who truly repent bear fruit. We see Jesus actually teach this in Matthew chapter 7, 16 through 20. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. John, Jesus lets us know here that you can recognize a tree by its fruit. And just as you can do that, you can also recognize a person by their fruit. People who are truly repentant bear fruit in, with, with repentance. And looking at the second half of this verse, you can see these people are probably a little offended at this point. They're like, you do, you do realize we're, we're Jews. We're God's chosen people that you're speaking to. How dare you call us a brood of vipers? How dare you call us to be unclean and call us to be baptized? Who do you think you are? And John, knowing what they're thinking by the Holy Spirit that is speaking through him at this point. John 3, 8 says this, And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. How can John ask them to be, you know, be, repent and be baptized? You know, what, what, who does he think he is? Are these people Gentile sinners? They don't need to be baptized. And John's response to this line of thinking is that God can raise children out of stones. Abraham, that they're nothing special. He wants them to know that it is not God who needs them, but it is them who need God. And I, I'm, I'm done with pastors that keep preaching that God is this God that is just begging for people to love him. That he is just, now he does 
he does wish that we do. He does love all. He, his judgment is his strange work. He desires not to send people to hell. That is true. But my friends, God does not need you, and God does not need me. God is God. He is all-sufficient in himself. He is the Trinity. He's been in perfect community for all eternity, and he created us to glorify him. And if we're not, we're going to be cut down and thrown into the fire. And it's not that he's sitting there saying, oh, I, you know, I, I'm so lonely without you. I hear these songs and they just these new praise and worship songs that just make me want to hit my head against a wall. It's like, oh, he's this like boy, Jesus boyfriend music you hear it called. And it's like, he's just begging you to come. And it's like, no, that is not the God we worship. Our God is not an impotent God who is desiring people to, to humble. No, our God is a God who says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. We see that in the book of Philippians chapter two. It says that everyone, and you know what that means? Forced or not forced. You can voluntarily bow your knee, and you can submit to his lordship, or you will, in the end, submit to it one way or another as you go to hell. I mean, you, there is no him begging you. or, or that kind of, We need to see God as God. He created everything. Do you not think the one who created everything can destroy everything? He is that God, and he will. He will. That's the book of Revelation. We're not quite there yet. Um, but so, so this line of thinking requires complete humility. And my friends, God fulfilled this prophecy that he said through John. He said that he could take stones and raise up children of Abraham. You're like, well, I didn't see that. I haven't read that story in the Bible. Where's that account at, that stones become men uh, in the Bible? No, we are those stones. The, the, the Bible says that we have stony hearts, that, that we are Gentile sinners. Those, I don't think anyone here is a Jew by nature, that you were born into uh, a Jewish family. So we are those stone-dead, stony-hearted pagans that God has resurrected and saved. How amazing is that? How beautiful is that? That if we are in Christ, we are who John is talking about here. We see in Romans eleven seventeen. But if some of the branches were broken off, and, and you, although a wild olive shoot, that's us, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. We were like wild olive shoots. We were weeds. We weren't a part of the tree. But God took these weeds, took us, these stone-dead people, and grafted us in to the tree of life, Jesus Christ. How beautiful is that, my friends, that, we can, we are, that now we can be saved, adopted, kings and, or adopted sons and daughters of the King of kings and Lord of lords. But I want to warn you, just as these people said, we're, we're children of Abraham, we don't need this baptism, we don't need to repent, we are chosen, we're good, I, I see that today in a lot of families that grow up in church. I see that, well, my dad and mom are Christian. My grandmother, my grandmother's a Christian. My grandfather, he's a pastor. You know what I mean? So I'm good. I'm okay with God. I've been born into a Christian family. I've went to church a few times. I've given God a head nod. You know, I, I went to that altar call whenever I was eight, even though I haven't thought another thing about God in the last 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, 60 years. You know, here's the thing. Don't think that just being in a Christian home and a Christian society in this, which is not anymore, but maybe here a little bit more than other places. And don't think about even just being a part of a Christian church saves you. If, if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you, Romans eleven twenty one. If he did not cut down Israel and say, you brood of vipers, and cut them down and say, hey, if you don't choose to follow me, you're not a part, will he, not, how, will, will he spare the wild olive shoots? Now, those of us who are truly saved, who are in Christ, you are saved. And praise God, no one can pluck you out of the Father's hand. But being a part of the church, 
being a part of a Christian family, being a part of a Christian lineage does not save you. We are saved by grace through faith, through our own repentance, through our, you know, through, through our own turning to Christ, not through our family, not through our church. We must humble ourselves before God and repent of our sins in order to be saved. John continues this warning in verse 9. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Wow, I mean, we're not saved by works, but our works are a mark that we are saved. It says that a, a diseased tree can't bear good, good fruit, but it also says that a good tree doesn't bear diseased fruit. So when you examine yourselves, and I plead for you to examine your hearts, what type of fruit do you bear? When you look at your life, what, what type of fruit are you bearing when you look at yourself? Is it, is it fruit that is consistent with true repentance, or is it fruit that is diseased? It, it, it's fruit that is not right. Those who are unsaved do not bear good fruit and will be cut down and thrown into the fire, it says here. It says that the axe, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. This imagery is terrifying. I mean, it is terrifying, church, that he is saying this because what he's saying is that the judgment of God is waiting for the right time to cut you down and throw you into hell. Like, that's what this says. That's tough, and I know that sounds really unloving to preach. I know people are like, man, I don't like that. I don't like that message. That doesn't make me feel good. No, it should, should terrify you. It should, you know, make you go to the bathroom here in a second. Like, it is that terrifying when you think about it. Sorry, i got to make a little joke there. Because, I mean, here's the thing. Nobody, when you look at that tree and you, you envision the axe at the root of that tree, God's not a God that needs to swing twice. God swings once, and his mercy is there for you. If you are an unbeliever, you are unsaved. His mercy is holding back the axe from the root of the tree. But one day that mercy will be removed, and those who are opposing him will not be saved. They will be cut down and thrown into the fire. There is no second chance, meaning the lake of fire or hell. I tell you that because I love you, and I hope that you tell other people that because you love them. If you have people in your lives that are not believers, they are not saved, that it, the axe is at the root of the tree, and they are this close to ending up burning forever in a place called hell. It is a real place. It's not just a fairy tale. Jesus spoke more about hell than anything else because he wanted to warn people, hey, the wrath is coming. Turn to me. I pray that everyone here has put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And if not, I pray that you don't go another day or another moment without repenting and turning to Christ. It's not a hard thing. You just need to repent, die to yourself, die to your own will, and put and say, not your will, but, or not my will, but your will be done. Repent, turn from your sins, and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ who died on that cross for your sins some 2,000 years ago, rose from the dead three days later, and now is at the right hand of the Father. He is merciful and kind to those who humble themselves before him. Yes, we should be scared of God if we are not in Christ. We should be terrified of God. Yes, we should revere God if we are in Christ because he is still God. But he is merciful and kind to those who humble themselves before him. The, the, the end of the story is not his judgment. The end of the story is his salvation. That God hates sin so much that he will throw people into hell because he is just and he loves righteousness. He is perfect righteousness and he cannot be in the presence of sin. But he also loves us so much that despite his pure justice, his pure judgment, he took it on the cross for us. 
He is so kind and merciful that although in his being he cannot tolerate us, no one is good, not even one, no one is righteous. We are worthless to be cast and burn up like chaff. We are not wheat. We are chaff by nature. But he loved us so much that he died on that cross for our sins. That if we put our faith and trust in him, he took that punishment for us. He gave us his righteousness for our rap sheet. What we deserved, he gave to us mercy instead. And how, how beautiful is that? But we don't understand how beautiful salvation is unless we know the judgment of God too. And I pray that we don't miss that. And when we share the gospel with others, they need to know what they're being saved from. Just saying Jesus loves you, you know, the Bible told you so. Like, okay, that's true, but it's not the full truth. They need to know that they need Christ, that they are sinners. They are hopeless without Christ. I pray that if you've sensed the Holy Spirit drawing you today, that you're like, you know, I haven't really put my full trust in God. I, I, I believe in Jesus, and I, I've said I believed in Jesus, but I'm really no different than Satan who believes in Jesus and saw him raised from the dead, but still doesn't follow him. Like, I'm, my life isn't a life that, that is following Christ. I need to really repent of my sins and make him the Lord of my life and acknowledge him in a saving way. My friends, just giving him a head nod and believing is not enough. It takes your whole life to take up your cross and follow after him. If that's you, and I pray that, that you talk to me after the service, I would love to discuss what true salvation is. Moving forward, we see some practical advice as John ends this section as people in their fear respond to him about this fruit of repentance. What, what, what do you mean by that? And let's read verses 10 through 14. When the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? He answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to him to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you were authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, Are we, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by, th by threats or false accusation, and be content with your wages. So we're given three different groups of people who ask invariably the same question. What shall we do? And in other words, in response to John's doomsday message, what shall they do in response? What is their response to this bad news and good news that, oh wow, we're a brood of vipers, we're evil, but yet there is hope, there's repentance that we can do, we can be forgiven through this repentance. What shall we do? And he tells the crowds, when they ask this question, to share with others. Generosity is a mark of a, a true believer. It's not the mark, but it is a mark. It is a fruit that we may see. This is because we understand the debt that we've been forgiven, so we're more generous with others. The opposite, being stingy, is a mark of an unbeliever because you don't realize how much you have been forgiven. You think others owe you instead of you owe, owe God your life and everything that you have. We must be generous to others. 1 John three seventeen fleshes this out further. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? If we can't love our brothers, we cannot love God. Then he answers the tax collectors who ask that exact same question. We're like, what about us? And tax collectors are not exactly known as the most friendly people that people like. Um, if, 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 you, if they had like a voting most likely to go to hell, they were probably higher on that list than some others uh, if they were voting in their, in their high schools. Um, didn't have that. I'm just joking. Uh, they, they are not to collect more than they have to. And this command presses in on the justice of God. Uh, we see God's love for justice in Proverbs throughout 
throughout the book of Proverbs. We see it in uh, Proverbs 16, 11, 21, and then here in 11, 11, all the same idea. A false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. This idea of justice is reiterated countless times in the Bible. God is a God of justice, and that is a mark of a believer as well. It's good fruit. And finally, he answers the soldiers present there with a charge to not extort money and be content with their wages. And here we see the sin of discontentment addressed by John. These soldiers were given special authority and power. They had weapons. They were strong, and they could extort people. They could you know, not be content with their wages. They could be like, oh, I can get a little bit more from this guy. I can squeeze these people a little bit. I, I don't bear the sword for no reason. I'm, I'm going to use it for that. And true believers are marked by contentment, faithfulness, and integrity. They don't use their power to take advantage of others. Another mark of a believer. So each of these answers are practically helpful even for us today. We, believe, we as believers should be marked by generosity, justice, and contentment. Yet as we think of these fruits, it's not that we are to seek after these fruits first. We're to seek after Jesus first. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Remember, we're not good. Our flesh even, like now yes, our old self is dead if we're in Christ, we're a new creation. We still have this flesh, and this flesh still wants to do what's wrong. As Paul said, I, I don't do what I want to do, and what I do want to do, I don't do. This, what a wretched man that I am is what Paul says about himself, and he wrote a lot of the Bible as well. And this righteous man who was given, ended up giving his life for Christ as he was beheaded in Rome still felt like there was this spiritual battle in him. What is going on? Why, why do I keep not doing what I want to do? And my friends, we are not saved by good works, and we cannot work our way to God. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 lets us know that we're not saved by good works, but we are saved and then do good works through the power of the Holy Spirit. Our job as believers, once we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we are filled with the Holy Spirit. God himself indwells us. How amazing is that? If we want to do better, we pray to God that he will do better through us, that we will become less of us and more of him, more sanctified and more like our Savior. As we come to a close, we've seen that the way of the Lord is made straight among an evil empire, among an evil environment, and we've just seen it made straight among an evil inheritance, namely Israel. Israel had turned away from their God. Yet John spoke to them as unbelievers and outcasts, and he did this to cut a straight path for the Lord. Friends, I do pray that each one of us here has repented and, and humbled ourselves before God and that we are saved. And again, if not, I'd love to talk to you after. Just let me know. We'll, we'll discuss that. If you have been saved, I pray that you do bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Uh, I pray that you examine your heart, examine your life. What kind of fruit are you bearing? That doesn't mean we're going to be perfect. My friends, we are, we're still in the sinful flesh that we have to fight day in, day out. But, but we need to be a people prepared and ready to meet the Lord. As John prepared them to meet the Lord the first time, we need to be prepared to meet the Lord when he comes back for his church, my friends, or when we go to meet him upon our death, which we don't know when that's going to be. Today, tomorrow, years from now, we don't know. But we need to be a people prepared to be ready to meet him. And may salvation be confirmed in your lives by the good fruit that you bear. Again, not that that fruit saves you, but it's a mark that you are. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you be with each one of us Lord God, we are in a wicked world. We can relate a lot to John as he prepared the way of the Lord at his time among an evil empire, an evil environment, an evil inheritance. These people that, that really desired nothing more than, than, than their own glory, 
the, the, the corruption that was there. Lord, we are in that kind of world today as well. And Lord God, I pray that you help us to repair the way of the Lord in a different way. That, 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 that we are going out and we are sharing the gospel with those around us. That we're willing to, maybe not in the same terms as John did, calling people a brood of vipers may not be the way to go about it. But Lord, I, I, I know that you did that through him at that point. But God, I pray that you help us to lovingly, but truthfully, tell people the gospel. To let them know that they are in a hopeless state without you that there is no salvation apart from you, that you are the only way, the only truth, the only life, that no one comes to the Father except through you, that they are wretched apart from you, that they, are, that they don't do good, that even the good things it seems like they do, they do for their own glory, which is not righteousness, still sin. And Lord God, help us to, to preach your word to others, to be willing to love them enough to, to endure shame, scorn, and even death possibly as the Messiah did. Lord God, if we are not saved, may we be willing to go all in for you today. Lord, I love you, praise you, and thank you. It's in your awesome holy name we pray, and amen. Have a blessed week.